What's your favorite Christmas song or carol? Okay, it's just us. You can interact with me. Somebody just shouted out. Oh, holy night. Oh, holy night. I heard, what was it? <laughs> okay. This, I've already lost control. This was a bad idea. I'm a sucker for lists. I, always, I like them. I know they're meaningless by and large. But I decided that I needed to know what the most popular Christmas carols were. So I went to the authority, Google. Um, Google gave me the facts. Here is the list. The most popular Christmas carols of all time, according to someone. Joy to the World, number one. Silent Night, O Holy Night, Matt. The first Noel and Heart the Herald Angels See. Those are the top five, okay? Now that might not surprise you, but this website went on to list the top 50, and it included some that are a little less familiar. Uh, From the Eastern Mountains, Joseph Dearest, Joseph Mine. Anyone ever sung that one before? How about Maker of the Sun and Moon? No? Here was my favorite, the Gloucestershire Wassail. All right, particularly powerful stanza here, appropriate for Christmas, I think. Wassail, wassail, all over town, our toast it is white and our ale it is brown. Our bowl it is made with the white maple tree, with the wassailing bowl we'll drink to thee. It goes on, here's to our cow and to her long tail. God send our master, uh, us never may fail, of a cup of good beer. I pray you draw near, and, and our jolly wassail, it's then you shall hear. I'm going to stop there, because believe it or not, the other stanzas should not be repeated in public. <laughs> Apparently the beer was flowing when they were writing the song. Uh, here's another one of the Christmas songs that doesn't get much run. The name of it is called the Nunc Dimittis. Latin for now release or dismiss. We heard it in our gospel reading. Those words are put to song, to carol, and some of the text reads, Save us, O Lord, while we are awake, and guard us from the sleep, that we may watch with Christ and rest in peace. Now thou dost dismiss thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word, in peace. Because my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. That's it. Brief. To the point. It was composed and sung spontaneously by an old man who was near his death, who had nothing better to do than to hang out around the temple and wait. And the church has been singing that song ever since. Isn't that fascinating? There's something about Christmas that just makes us want to sing, you know? God has come to earth in the form of a baby. Either it's the greatest publicity stunt in history, or it's the most staggering, life-altering, joy-giving occasion that could be possibly imagined. And if it is that, well, then 
The only possible response is to sing. Can you imagine, try to imagine life for a moment without any music at all? What would we do? In response to those moments of greatest joy and of deepest grief. When words alone are not enough to communicate and to take in truth and to express that truth, humanity has always and always will resort to music. Resonates with the depths of our humanity, it provides us a means of expressing what we otherwise struggle to express. There was a time in human history, believe it or not, when we didn't have calculus. I'm sorry, Tracy. I know this is near and dear to your heart. We didn't have calculus, trigonometry, scientific theories that illumine our world. We didn't have any of that. But we've never been without music. The loss of music would be so immense that we would just assume the end of the world. When you imagined it a moment ago and I was silent, what did you feel? Well, emptiness, right? So when the news is so grandiose, so deep, so powerful, so compelling, we sing it. And Simeon sang a song like that. Salvation had arrived in the form of a baby of all things. He was the hope of the world. Simeon was at peace with his own imminent death, knowing that the grave wouldn't swallow him whole. Salvation from death, from earthly political oppression, remember, Simeon was under the power of Rome. That salvation from darkness was centered and contained in a baby who had arrived at the temple to undergo a bloody ritual called circumcision. So strange, isn't it? There, this place, this temple, the center of Jewish worship, and the place where heaven and earth would meet, incidentally. You remember what was there, the ark, the covenant, the holiest place in the temple, guarded by a curtain. That was the location of God's special presence on earth. That particular geographical location. Jesus arrives as an obedient and faithful Israelite, and Simeon also pens his first and only song, a song for the ages, as it happens. Simeon sang of the glory of Israel. A lot of people were looking for that. They were looking for a return to David's and Solomon's glorious kingdoms. Conquer Rome, end suffering, set the world right with Israel at the top. That was the agenda. The ruler who could do that would surely be the Messiah, the anointed one from God. And incidentally, anyone who would wish to be king of the Jews and could not be a world superpower was hardly Jewish. Now, they weren't alone in thinking this way. This is how all kingdoms think. Should a country's leadership relinquish power or fail to flex military muscles, why, what business do they have of being in charge? That's just how our world operates. Well, that was the time in which Simeon lived. 
the glory of Israel, her salvation, in the minds of all of those around Simeon, would be a king like David, one who ruled the world. But Simeon was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was also full of the prophet Isaiah's words. And his song so clearly, as his song so clearly reflects. And so he composed a song that didn't sound quite like the melodies of the day. Simeon said that the glory of Israel would be that this salvation, this baby, would also be a light to the Gentiles, not simply the Jews. It was universal in scope. He was not here to create an Israeli world superpower, but rather he was here to make Israel the light to the world that God had always intended for them to be. From a normal, human, socio-political perspective, Jesus was not the ideal king, not the one the world is looking for. This was not a familiar-sounding song in Israel. And somehow Simeon knew that. He knew the implications of this different sort of salvation. And in an awkward, jaw-dropping moment, Simeon turns directly to Mary and says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And what a way to end your song. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. I don't know if he sang it. I can imagine him whispering it, maybe not. Maybe he said that line louder than the others. But the song at this point strikes a minor chord. Dark, subtle tones that signal there's something in store for this family that they didn't ask for. The consolation of Israel, the peace that God had promised them, that which Simeon was waiting for would come, but it would come through the suffering of this baby who would become a man. He would deal with Israel's suffering, not with overwhelming military force, but by entering into it. The suffering, that is. By being subjected to it, and by beating it on its own terms. Not the normal way of what consolation means. And Simeon warns that a lot of his people will say thanks but no thanks. We don't want him as our Messiah. And Simeon was right. A lot of people did. And many still do today. Simeon had been waiting a lifetime for this salvation. He would depart this earth in peace, free from doubts, because God had come through in the form of a baby. What a Christmas carol, right? Sometimes words put to music capture our imaginations and move our hearts, and Simeon's certainly do that. 
But there's something else about this carol that's interesting. It's not just the content of what the song says, but it's also the person who is singing it. So a number of years ago, uh, you may or may not have ever seen this show, but uh, say probably 15 years ago now, there was a show in the UK when we were living in Scotland called Britain's Got Talent. You've heard of it? And uh, there was a lady that came on the show, and uh, she was feisty and, uh, you know, um, wanting to make her mark, but no one expected her to be able to bring anything of substance to this show. Her name was Susan Boyle. And Susan, to everyone's surprise, began to sing I Dreamed a Dream so beautifully that the people who had been laughing at her moments earlier, mocking her, were astonished and moved deeply. She sang that. As an aside, our son Will, who's not here tonight, sang with his choir at a special event in Edinburgh with all sorts of dignitaries present, and Susan Boyle sang with them. And we weren't allowed to go uh, because there wasn't room, and afterwards I wanted to talk to Will about it, and he was insistent on watching Top Gear <laughs> and ignoring me completely. You know what? I dare say I Dream a Dream has been sung better. And I dare say there are more powerful songs out there. But that time, it carried us away because of who sang it. A baby is being heralded as salvation for Israel and the world. That's surprising enough. But Luke reports that at this monumental moment in the baby's life, his circumcision, he only encounters two very old people. Simeon and Anna. Here in Luke are the two age groups most likely to be marginalized in our society. The very young and the very old. We find them a burden. Either they're too young to understand or they're too old to keep up with the times. Neither group is of much benefit because they lack knowledge on the one hand or youthful vigor on the other to accomplish what we have decided is so essential in life. Like making money or playing sport. Or something like that. It's better if we just send those older folks to the caregivers so those of us in that perfect age bracket can just crack on making the world go round. But these two marginalized groups of people, the very young and the very old, inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. <laughs> what does that tell you? about God. Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these. You know what else he said at that time? If you stop the children from coming to me, you'd be better off with a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. That's the only time I think Jesus talks that way apart from Pharisees. He got serious about the children. 
but it's the youth that often get shunned, pushed out of the power structures of society on the basis that they lack experience. And it's the older ones who feel like they get put out to pasture or put on a shelf. Nothing to offer, given their low, lower levels of production in society. So as it turns out, we're allowed a relatively brief span of time to be considered valued members of society. So, enjoy. Survey a few years ago indicated that churches, when faced with a hire for a senior pastoral position, will almost always choose the candidate under 50 years old. That, nor are they apt to hire anyone under 35. You need experience, but not too much. Too young, and you're an energetic, disruptive burden. Too old, and we won't get anything done. We won't grow. We won't attract young people. And yet, here we are, in Luke 2, with the announcement of the kingdom of God on earth. And the ones who announce it are an old man and an old woman who are waiting around at the temple. Praying for God to show up. Luke speaks so well of these two that his message is clear. This song is the right song. Because it's coming from the right person. The God, the one God ordained to be there. Curiously, we hear nothing else about Simeon after he sings this to us. So it's as if God is saying, hey, are you looking for me? Well, then look to the margins of society, and that's where you'll find me at work. There are churches across our country that are large and full of young people. The pastors of those churches get articles written about them and invitations to speak at large conferences. No one invites the pastor of a small church whose median age is 65 years old. Now, I know all the explanations. I understand why we long for young professionals in our church. I get it. But just maybe, is it possible that we get fixated on things that aren't as quite as important to God? I read about a young new pastor who answered a call to a small, old, dying congregation. I mean, who would do that? Who would go? I see those advertisements. I used to look at them. And you would say, we're, they would say, we're ready to move forward. And then you look a little bit more closely. We have an average attendance of 23, all over the age of 80. And they're on that website for five years looking for somebody. This person went. There were no young people in the church, no prospects of getting any. One day she noticed a significant number of young children in the church's neighborhood who wandered aimlessly after school. So in her sermon that Sunday, she said something like this. What will we do for these children? And she issued a loving challenge. About three ladies in their 70s volunteered to start an after-school club for those children. 
and it was wildly successful. And I'm sure it was wild as well. <laughs> Why was it so successful? Because those ladies decided to wear cool leggings and boots? Was it their strategic use of Snapchat and Instagram? Nope. It was wildly successful because they were there. And God's Spirit came down in that place. And the salvation of the Lord was alive. And that church grew. What about us? I want to challenge those of us who feel like we're on the margins. I just can't do anything in the church. No one really wants me to anyway. Well, now that's where you're wrong. If God has given you anything, he's given you wisdom and experience and the very spirit of God, just like Simeon. Now what do we do with that? Are we passing that on to our younger generation? Well, we can do that. We can spare an hour for a young man who needs friendship and wisdom. We can spare an hour for a young mother who's struggling to keep up with everything she's juggling and needs prayer and a nap. Mentoring, sharing, sacrificing, giving away. If you're over that age, whatever that age is, I simply want to challenge you to pray about what God has for you here, right now, in your 60s, 70s, 80s. Christ has come to you. You have experienced his blessing and peace. You are Simeon's, you are Anna's. For those of you who are young, who are still wondering about yourself, who you are, where you belong, what you have to offer the world. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. I hope you hear that declaration from our Lord. He's not saying you merely have a piece of it, or that you'll get it one day when you reach the age of 35 and enter into that perfect lifespan. He's not saying that the kingdom of heaven is yours to observe during worship at 4 p.m. on a Sunday. No, the fullness of everything that God is in Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit belongs to you as much as it does to me or anyone else in this room who's older than you. You are called to be full members of the kingdom of God. And that calling is for your own sake, for your own peace and joy, but also for the peace and joy of others. Now, how will you fulfill that call? Maybe it's here, within these walls, and within this little community. Or maybe, maybe it's out there somewhere giving your life away just as Christ has given His for you. 
What a song this is. What a singer, Simeon. It's a song for us to sing. It's a life for us to live. The glory of Israel, the light to the Gentiles, has come. Let's sing that song to the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.